Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. But uh, Mark 13, chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 13, verse 5. Uh, and Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, he and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated for all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the, in the winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been seen. I'm sorry. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been sent since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord has shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest point part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. <laughs> Thanks be to God, I guess. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. That's right. Thanks be to God. And he said, thanks be to God, I guess. <laughs> hey, before you take your seat, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for Eddie, Lord, first and foremost, for leading us in that scripture reading. And we thank you for... God, truly the gift of your word and all of its depth. Um, Lord, your word is, is both understandable for those who are new to you. We can come to you with these simple truths. And it is deeper for the most seasoned saint to reach the end of. And, and so we just come to you this morning, Lord, as we are, um, despite where we're at, we ultimately all have the same need this morning. And it's just that we're here as people, Lord, your children, who just need you. We're just here for you, God. We just recognize, just even as a declaration of faith through our presence here this morning, we recognize that our lives need you. 
They need your touch. They need your word. They need your guidance. They need your presence. And so as we come before you this morning, as we draw near to you, thank you, God, that you're going to draw near to us. You've been here in the worship, in the fellowship, in the gathering. We ask God now that you would be especially present in the understanding of your word and the preaching of your word. We just invite your Holy Spirit to minister to us, to take us closer to our understanding, in our understanding of Jesus. And God, ultimately, we pray that you would speak to us. We give you the space to do that now. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your seat. Good morning. All right. Well, good to be with you guys on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. Get a load of that. It's uh, nice to see the forecast for this week. This is the kind of week that causes people who are visiting here to move to Florida before staying for the summer, probably. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful morning, a perfect morning for some Bible prophecy. Welcome to church. Getting into some heavy, deep waters uh, this morning. Uh, just Eddie again, well done, bro. Well done. Bars. There were some Dr. Seuss-style rhymes in there, and you nailed it. Um, so just a little backdrop. I want to welcome everyone uh, to Solus. It's really good to have you guys. My name is Andrew. If I haven't met you yet, um, it's a real joy to be here with you guys. This is now our four-and-a-half-year four tradition, gathering here on Sunday morning as a church uh, here at this uh, uh, middle school that we turn into a house of worship uh, with the sole goal of centering our lives around Jesus. Um, Kyle mentioned it, but I'll just say it again. If you're new here uh, and you want to know a little bit more about us, your first step is just going to be to stop by our Connect table. Another step that's available once a month to you, and that's available today, it won't be available again until next month, is to join us right after this gathering for a free lunch to your right, my left, in our teacher's lounge on the other side of the curtain there for our Welcome to Solace class. It's a short, maybe 45-minute max lunch and connection time where we share a little bit more about who we are and really get to know more about who you are and helping kind of connect the dots there uh, with your involvement in our community. Um, we are working our way, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is one of four biographies on the life of Jesus in the New Testament. And each of these uh, biographies have a unique, almost, uh, version and element to them that tells the same story in its own unique way. The Gospel of Mark gives us a unique picture of the actions and the life of Jesus. That's really what Mark is about. Um, Mark really wants us to show us the way in which Jesus lived his life. It's, it's there to sort of answer the classic WWJD question. What would Jesus do? It's like, well, I know. I studied Mark in, uh, in, our, in our church. And so that's kind of the goal. Mark shows us the way of Jesus. And so each week, as we're walking through the gospel of Mark, we're observing all the different aspects of the way of Jesus. And we're certainly seeing a unique facet of that here in chapter 13. I said it last week. I'll say it again. This is one of the reasons uh, why we study the Bible expositionally, meaning we allow the Bible to chart the course of our study. We don't come to the Bible with our own ideas, but we open up the Bible and we just learn it together. We allow God to speak through his word, trusting and believing that his words are always going to be better than our ideas. Amen? Now, when you do that, you end up here this morning in Mark chapter 13 with 
a doozy, <laughs> a doozy of a passage. Um, I was tired last week. Remember I said that last week? I was like, guys, I'm tired. My heart is full. My brain is tired. And then I studied for this morning, and I'm there again, times two probably. But uh, Mark 13, I, we're, we're going to go through this, and um, I'm just going to be real with you. This tends to be kind of what Sunday mornings look like in our studies here. But this is going to be like a Thanksgiving dinner style sermon. I'm not going to like give you like slow little bites along the way. We're going to get a full plate of God's word this morning. So I'm just prepping us to be ready for for what's to come. Okay? Just trying to be nice. Just trying to be nice. Um, As we study the scriptures verse by verse here through Mark, we're led into a special study a special topic of study that Jesus is all about, and he's talking all about here in Mark 13, and it's the study of end times events, or in the theology world, eschatology, which is just a big word you could use to show off to your friends that simply means the study of the end things. Eschatology comes from eschatos, a Greek word that just means the end or the last things. And we are working our way through this chapter, kind of seeing what Jesus has to say about it. If you'd like to take notes, here's kind of the main thrust of the section we just read, especially as it pertains to Jesus. If you want to write this down, Mark 13 shows us specifically the way that Jesus prepared. That's, again, kind of our our plan for each chapter and section we get to, looking at a different aspect of his way. Here in Mark 13, in these verses that we read that are just all over the place with all sorts of different almost enigmatic content. We'll talk about that. Uh, The big overarching idea, and even the overarching picture we get of Jesus here in Mark 13, is we see Jesus preparing his people, preparing his disciples. Now, um, this is something that we've seen before, right? Jesus is often busy preparing his disciples, Um, We see this mostly in the Gospel of John, right before he departs. There's just three whole chapters of Jesus teaching his disciples, seeking to get them ready for life without him right next to them. And they've gotten used to that, as we all would. That's pretty convenient. Jesus is with you everywhere you go in physical bodily form. You know what I'm saying? It's just awesome. Big storm, just pray. The storm goes away. It's great. It's like, I like Jesus in my boat. You know, you got to pay your taxes? Go fishing and you'll be able to pay your taxes. I mean, it gets rather convenient. Your brother's dead. That's not great. You got Jesus, and he brings him back from the dead. So the disciples had gotten used to life with Jesus right next to them, and most of the Gospels contain Jesus' preparation, trying to prepare them to shift their dependence on his Holy Spirit, who's going to be in them, who's going to guide them, the helpers coming upon them. So that's really most of what we see with Jesus him preparing them for his departure, right? That's kind of the big idea we often see, where here in Mark 13, we see something unique, something not typical. Here in this passage, Jesus isn't so much preparing his disciples for his departure, but instead we see Jesus preparing them for his return, preparing his disciples for his second coming, his next coming his promised return, which they have certainly heard about before. This was a truth that we established last week. You know, with all the mystery surrounding end-time events, all the Kirk Cameron movies, Gary Busey movies, don't forget that one, 
All of the, the, the novels, even all of the popular Hollywood depictions of the end of the world, there can be so much confusion and even obsession with a lot of these things. But last week, we took some time to stop and just center our lives around the truths that the Bible gives us simply, the main and plain things that most, if not all, Christians agree upon. Uh, we're going to talk today, There's um, and even maybe as you come in here today, there's going to be some things I say that you disagree with. And I just want to say, you're wrong. Just kidding. I don't feel that way. Of course I don't feel that way. You know what I want to say? That's what we might think I would say. No, you're welcome here, and let's have a conversation. Let's hold these things loosely. There are four things that every Christian has agreed on, and here's the truth of that. It's the fact that Jesus will return, that Jesus will reward, Jesus will renew, and ultimately Jesus will reign. Can I get an amen? So this is what, regardless of your background, this is Christian orthodoxy right here. Regardless of your millennialism and your, your interpretation of this passage or revelation, uh, this is the singular event that we're all looking to and hoping in. Jesus promised that he will come again. He promised to return. He's faithful to his word. Just as he came the first time, he'll come a second time. When he comes, he's coming to reward everyone, the Bible says, according to their works. There's two there, there's, there's two groups here. Jesus is going to reward the believers, the righteous, with blessing, and he'll reward the unrighteous with destruction and judgment. He'll also come to renew all things. Jesus doesn't just come to save some people. Jesus' master plan is the restoration of all things. That begins with you and me. Our own bodies will be restored. And we'll get to be there for the new creation, the second creation where God will renew this whole world. Our eternal hope is not in some disembodied, ethereal state. We're floating around listening to David Bowie, okay? Maybe David Bowie's music is in heaven. I don't know. But whatever picture we tend to have in our head of just kind of like, woo, harps and angels and baby creepy looking things on clouds, like... The Bible depicts a real material hope of our future, the restoration of a world where the Bible says there's no more death, there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more cancer, there's no more hurt, but God is there in all of his glory at the center of his people. Jesus is coming to renew all things. We're the foretaste of that as his people. People look on at us and we're new creations and we're a shadow of what's to come. And this is why it's such a good day to come. Jesus is going to reign. He's, everything is going to be right because Jesus will be rightly enthroned. If you haven't noticed, things aren't right here in this world. And, and it's because of the same really heartbeat that Jesus had in his time where they said, we don't want him to rule over us. We don't want Jesus to be king. This is all of our own battle. We, we prefer to be our own kings, but Jesus has come to re-enthrone himself on the throne of our lives and for all of eternity. Everything will be right because Jesus will reign forever, and the kingdoms of this world will bow to him. Uh, this is what Jesus, listen closely, this is what Jesus is preparing his people for. That, that's what's going on here in Mark 13. This is coming, and Jesus wants his people to be ready. He doesn't want us to be lulled asleep with doing, you know, religious activity, caught up in the minutia of life. He wants us to be prepared for his return. He wants us to be ready when he comes. Now, let's remember the context. Really interesting context here in Mark 13. Let's go back through this. This is the first, um, you know, portion of Thanksgiving dinner here. Here we go, okay? It says that the, as they went out of the temple, remember this? One of his disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, 
look at this incredible stone or this incredible building and, and the manner of stones that these buildings are made of. They're sightseeing. They're mesmerized by the temple, Herod's temple. I mean, you and I would have been as well, an, an ancient wonder of the world, just glorious to behold. And they're just, I, I kind of feel bad for the disciples here because they're just making an obvious observation. They're like, that's amazing, right? And Jesus is like, it's going to be destroyed, okay? And they're like, okay, sorry. I was just, you know. But G Jesus makes a prophetic prediction. He says, yeah, it's great on the outside, but that was the problem with the fig tree. It appeared beautiful. It appeared spiritual. The house of worship was glorious on the outside, but it was void of spirituality on the inside. And so Jesus predicts the coming promised judgment upon this temple. He even predicts it precisely that, one, that not one stone will be left upon another. This is exactly how the temple was destroyed after an uprising and revolt of Israel. The Roman government came in and flattened the temple in 70 AD, just as Jesus prophetically predicted. Uh, like This is, again, a reminder that when Jesus says that future events are going to happen, you could take those promises to the bank. Like In that day, you can live like the temple is going to be destroyed. Like Maybe don't go hang out in there after Jesus says this. You know what I'm saying? The same is true for us today. Every, every other thing that Jesus has promised about the future, we could take to the bank. Are you with me? And we could live like what he's promising is going to be fulfilled. Now, here's what happens. After Jesus says this, um, Jesus gathers his core group together. Jesus had 12 disciples. We know that. But out of those 12, there were four, really three. Andrew gets pulled in every now and then. Sometimes Andrews get left out. It's really sad. I'll talk to you about it later. All right? But oftentimes it was Peter, James, and John, sometimes Andrew, this inner circle, Peter, his right-hand man, and they, were, they would get pulled around Jesus, because, not because God you know, shows favoritism, you know, and Jesus is like, I like you guys more than those guys. Like Thomas, that guy, he doubts all the time, you know. That guy, Judas, is sketchy. <laughs> no, the reason why Jesus would pull them close is because he had unique plans for them, and he was investing into their future leadership. And, and so and so Peter, James, and John, they, they get to be a part of this private gathering with Jesus. Jesus is predicting future events. And they say, Jesus, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? This is the foundation of everything else in Mark chapter 13, this, quest this question. Now, Matthew chapter 24, which is a parallel passage to Mark, most scholars agree that the gospel of Mark serves often as like source material to the other Gospels. Matthew 24 gives us a little bit more intel as to what's going on in the disciples' minds as they ask this question. In fact, there's a little bit more to their question. Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, and Matthew tells us that in this private briefing, they ask, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, if you were here last week, most of this is review, but we need to go back on this in order to go forward. Uh, what do we see from this question, from this insight? Uh, we, we see that the disciples, in their mind, they equated the, this destructive destruction of the temple that would happen in 70 AD. They were connecting that to two other events, Jesus' second coming and the end of the age. Okay, So that, that's what they did in their minds. Um, 
Jesus had talked to them before about the fact, like, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm going to come again. They, they knew Jesus would come again. And in their mind, probably because in, in Israel's history, um, the destruction of the temple represented the day of the Lord. There's like, I was even studying this some more. It's interesting to see there, there would be these, these conditions that God would give to Israel that based on their faithfulness, the temple would either survive or be destroyed, even in, in Old Testament times. And so they're looking on at this prediction Jesus makes about the temple, which is fulfilled in 70 AD, and they're going, this must be when you're going to return, Jesus. This must be when the end of the ages. Are you guys following me? Okay, first portion. This is just like, this is our, um, this is our garlic bread. I just want to say that. Okay, this is our garlic bread. There's more to come. All right. Now, what an interesting question they're asking. They ask two questions. Jesus, you think you're going to return? I think you're talking about your return. When are you going to come back? When's it going to happen? I want to know. I could tell Siri. She'll put it in the calendar. All right? I want to be ready. I also want to have my fun before you come back. It's kind of like that thing. Like, when are you coming back? I used to think that way as a kid. If I knew when the Lord was coming back, I could manipulate this thing, you know? <laughs> when? That's the first question. Second question, and they're, they're almost like if, if, assuming he's not going to answer that one. Because Jesus rarely gives the disciples exactly what they asked for. He gives them something deeper often. So they're like, when are you coming back? And they're like, option B. <laughs> what are the signs that we should look for that are going to signify your return? You still following me? Now, Jesus answers their question in the chapter we just read. To the first question, what does Jesus say? He says... No man knows the day nor the hour. He essentially says, IDK. I just, I don't know. I can't tell you. In fact, in his humanity, we'll, we'll look at this. He'll say, even the Son of Man. In my humanity, the Son of Man does not know. The Father knows. Jesus answers and says, it's, it's not for you to know. Right? That's what he tells them in Acts chapter 1. Is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus goes, it's, it's not for you to know. It's for me to know and you, you not to know. That's what he says. Um, and obviously, we know that so many things go wrong with end time stuff when people start acting like they know when Jesus is coming back. And this is not like far outside of American church history. Like, like even my inherited theological background and tradition and network of, uh, and family of churches, there was groups of people in that world that like, yeah, Jesus, you do, some, you do some biblical numerology, you do the equation, it's like algebra plus the Bible, and you can know. You can know. Okay, so, and then it's like, okay, Y2K, what's up with that? Okay, we're good. And then there's like the whole Mayan thing. We're like, are we good? What's going on? Good movie, I guess, right? And, and this is what happens throughout history. People are doing their best to try to pinpoint something that Jesus says, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. We're going to talk about this more next week, how to live inside, in, in light of, of Jesus' sudden return. We're going to talk about that next week. Living in light of these things is next week. Uh, but here Jesus is like, no one knows the day or the hour. Now, the second question, listen, is something that Jesus is eager to answer. When we come before Jesus and say, Jesus, would you give me insight to be able to, to discern the times and gain some understanding as to when you'll return? Or not, maybe not the day or the hour, but the way Paul says it is the times and seasons. Jesus will use a parable and say, like, this is foreign to us living in Florida, but if you've ever been to the Northeast before, the color of the leaves, and there's other places in the world where leaves change colors. Change colors. 
You're like, yeah, I have dead brown leaves that my landscapers put in my yard. I know that. No, like beautiful orange. I was just in Maine two weeks ago. Glory. Just glory. Um, and Jesus tells a parable. He's like, you know summer's near based on the season, based on the leaves on the trees. And Jesus is, is going to give the disciples some intel, some insight, so that they can discern the times, to know whether or not Jesus is at the door, is what he'll say. He, he's eager to answer this question. Let me say this, because Jesus, listen, desires for his people to be ready for him to come. He wants you to know he wants you to discern that his end is near, that his return is near. Now, I think this is a good time to sort of put a pause here and just uh, clarify some things about what you're maybe already discerning as my understanding and position on this topic. Uh, personally for me, when I read Mark chapter 13, um, what I see here is events or signs that are directly linked to, to the second coming of Jesus. The most uh, kind of clear evidence of that is verse 24 that says, in those days, the days of what we're talking about. And then Mark will go on, or Jesus here, will go on to describe his second coming. Uh, in my mind, as I look at Mark 13, what I see here is future events, future signs, because as far as I know, Jesus hasn't returned yet. I believe that's a future event. And that's actually basic Christian orthodoxy, believes Jesus hasn't come back yet. And so I connect these signs to a future coming. That's how I understand this. Now, there are generally two camps in the world of eschatology. And we'll say that these, there are two camps within orthodoxy, within Christian you know, brotherhood, maybe even in our church. Uh, these are the two camps. There's the futurist camp, and then there's the preterist camp. Futurist, as you might understand, is pretty self-explanatory. It's, it's uh, people that look on at the book of um, Revelation, specifically, and the events here in Mark 13, and they connect them to future events. And I want to say that both of these don't hold to like a full view of this, meaning a, a lot of people argue that a lot of these events in Mark 13 have already been fulfilled. And I think there's great evidence that points to that. When you look at what was going on in Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, this is where a lot of um, kind of the streams of thought flow from is those events. And, and what I would say as a futurist in that camp, and I even like hesitate to be like, as a futurist, you know, me as a futurist over here, I, I kind of hesitate to, be, to hold a position too tightly. But um, if any of these events have been fulfilled in the past, I would look on at those and say that those are partial fulfillments that are prefigures of an ultimate fulfillment. Does that make any sense? This is often how Bible prophecy will work. There'll be like near partial fulfillments. Think of the Old Testament prophets like writing to Israel. And they're like, hey, these things are coming and the day of the Lord is coming. And those are like real near fulfillments that are coming upon those people. But they're also shadows of ultimate fulfillments. Okay. All right, I got some head now. I got a couple of these. I get you. Okay. That's where I would land, sort of a part, a, a, a view of futurism. I see, when I look at the book of Revelation, yeah, I do think there, there's a lot there that is speaking to the people at that time, but I also believe there's an ultimate fulfillment that's still to come. Now, preterism would be almost similar, but the opposite. 
Uh, the word preterism just comes from a Latin word for past. It's literally like pastism. So the view here is mostly that the book of Revelation and the events in this chapter have taken place mostly in a past tense. So for a lot of people, there isn't, in this camp, there isn't a future tribulation to come. There isn't like an antichrist to watch out for. There isn't, um, there isn't a rapture. Have you ever heard of that idea? Rapture, the rapture of the church. Um, there's just so many worms in this camp this morning. All right. Um, this, that's kind of the view of, of this camp. And here's what I would just say about this. Um, as someone who holds the position of a futurist, I, I'm someone that holds that position, but I hold it loosely. Okay, these should, our view of, the, of something very rather enigmatic and complex to understand, when it, when it comes to th this sort of doctrinal issue, this isn't something that we should hold tightly enough to where we punch each other with our disagreements. Are you with me? You ever seen Christians do that? Like, oh, you believe this. You know, it's like, that's not what your doctrines are for, beating each other up with them, okay? Uh, and just for, for the sake of, of, of this, I wanted to just um, kind of bring us back to a grid that we've used in the past, um, and we've kind of elaborated on it. Um, but here's a grid that we've used in the past to navigate uh, doctrinal disagreements amongst Christians and the churches. It's something we've tried to use as a church that's one of many churches in our community that believes in the, the prayer of Jesus in John 17 for his church to be one, to not, you know, there's so much, um, so much of the opposite today where churches are just boxing out for bodies and bucks. And, um, you know, Paul or John talks about this spirit of, of someone that just wants to be first. It's like, you know, Solus, this is extra, I'm going to get into this in a second, but so, like, I want us to be the kind of church that we pray for revival to happen in our city, and we're content with seeing it happen through the church down the street. Because it's about the kingdom. It's about Jesus. It's not about our earthly empires that are just going to fade away. Okay? Every, every single one of the churches that Paul planted today, have, they're, they're not 501c3s anymore. You know what I'm saying, Okay. We want to live for something greater. Now, in that spirit, though, Paul does warn us to be cautious, to be careful about who you lock arms with. There is such a thing as doctrinal compromise. There's, there's a little leaven that can, that can leaven the whole lump. Okay, so we, we use this grid usually to kind of quantify doctrinal disagreements, and it just intensifies as things get greater. There are some issues that, like, are not even worth the debate, but we should just decide over. Like, if these are hills, you know, there's, like, hills of disagreement. There's hills you die on. It's like, well, sometimes there's hills you just decide on. You're just like, I don't care what color we paint the fellowship hall. You decide, okay? Our fellowship hall is in the kids area, by the way, in case you're wondering on your way out. But, and there have been, by the way, do you know this? There have been church splits over things like this. What color to paint the children's room? I mean, it's crazy, the kind of stuff that Christians will fight about, okay? Brothers and sisters like to fight, unfortunately, right? Um, there's some things that it's not even really worth the debate, but maybe it gets into that category with, with a group of other issues. There's other hills that are really worth the fight. And when I say fight, like a brotherly contended conversation, and maybe that's kind of where we are with this stuff today. This would be the kind of thing that I don't believe should divide us. It shouldn't. Doctrines in terms of the end times and how those things play out shouldn't fall in the category of like, well, I think in a preterist mindset, you think in a futurist mindset, you start your church over here, I'm going to start my futurist church over here, we're going to call it future church, okay? 
and you'll be past church, loser. No, it's like we're not going to do that. We're, we're not going to split. And now, that said, there are issues. There are issues that functionally speaking, whether it's cultural differences. Um, I found this true. Like there's churches that, and even in our community, that like maybe I unite with them doctrinally, but we're like a world apart with philosophy. Does that make sense? Like how we think about discipleship and community, mission, all that stuff. And we go, hey, brother, you know, we agree, but we're going to go over here and you go over there. Division. It's healthy. It's healthy. You need more than one kind of church in every city. Amen? There's so many kinds of different people. I love it when we were like starting Solas and so many church people were like, what? Boca doesn't need another church. I'm like, that's the problem. That's the problem. You're right. Boca doesn't need another church. Boca needs 50 more churches per mile. Amen? And South Florida as well. Okay. I'm ranting. Let's move faster. Decide issues, debate issues, divide issues. There are in Scripture detachment issues, issues that you would disassociate with someone over, um, that, that would, issues that are, are so major that they hinder the work of the gospel. Um, to me, this is a category of someone that we, we so disagree that like, I may be concerned for the sincerity of their salvation based on the faith they're professing. These could be issues about sexuality. These could be issues... Um, about scripture in general, the Bible itself. These could be issues about the, like, let's start here, the gospel, the nature of the gospel, um, a prosperity gospel. Like, 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 there's, have you ever met someone who claimed the name of Jesus and you're like, I'm not going near you? Do you know what I'm saying? Okay. I, I'm just, don't leave me alone up here. Okay. I'm not trying to be me. I'm just trying to be real. There's times where I'm just like, I, I'm, I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned for what you're doing in the name of Jesus. Um, and I want to have that same reverence over my own life and ministry. But there are some issues that you would detach over. And then there's straight up things that you just deny someone as a brother in Christ over. You, you, you don't even give them the right hand of fellowship. Uh, that's some hard language. But this is sort of a grid that I think uh, the New Testament would, would lay out for us. All that to say, when I look on at the end times events described here in Mark 13, I, I'm going to stick it here in the debate issue. Because um, it's like worth having a fun conversation over until your whole small group is screaming at each other for weeks upon end. Then it's like, let's go here, okay? Let's just agree to disagree and talk about our lives, okay? So, so it's kind of like right there, okay? Right in between. All right. That was fun. Next. All that to say, here's what I've noticed when it comes to end time stuff. I don't know if you've felt fallen into this temptation. But a lot of times people look on at end times things, this doctrinal, doctrinal category. And I mean, I, I'm tempted to this as I'm studying this. What you learn is you're like, people way smarter than me disagree with me. And you're like, what do I do now? Okay. And I've noticed a tendency, especially among kind of my generation of Christians, that anytime a doctrinal issue requires a little bit more than I tend to want to give, I tend to back out and just kind of live in apathy. And that's kind of the mindset that a lot of people can take with these things, that we can sort of like throw our hands up and just go, well, um, this is why I don't care about eschatology, really. Why are we even studying this? I mean, this isn't the gospel-centered. This isn't the gospel. That's kind of the mindset. And we could sort of give up, and you might have heard the phrase like where people are like, you know, I'm not pre-millennial or post-millennial. I'm pan-millennial. It'll all pan out, right? You ever heard that? I'm pan-trib. We'll see how it goes. And there is truth to, I think, that humble heart with these things. But I want to show us a verse that, that Eddie so 
eloquently read to us in verse 14. Uh, Here in Mark 13, verse 14, I don't know if it's Mark or Jesus saying this. I don't know because I don't know. It's not in red letters in my Bible. So that just means the, um, the editors, those that were over the printing of the Bible, didn't print it in red. You know, it's not like in the Greek they were writing in red and black. You know that, right? Okay, good. Um, whoever said this, we believe it's inspired by God. And this verse in Mark 13, I'm, I'm about to obligate you to something. Don't you hate when people obligate you? Isn't that the worst? You try to avoid those people. Okay. Welcome to church. Okay. It says here, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, you know, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Little parenthetical obligatory statement. Let the reader understand. It's not me, it's the Bible. The Bible's like, you got to understand. You got to. Go for it. That's literally what Mark is saying to us. As we read this, we're, we're obliged to listen closely, to give our best understanding and efforts to comprehend what Jesus has revealed to us about end times events. That doesn't mean we'll all end up on the same conclusions, but I do believe, and we talked about it more last week, that these topics are worth our attention and effort. Can I tell you, like, there's no greater reward like mining the scriptures for God to reveal his truth to you. You ever had that happen? And you just go on a journey with him. And can I just tell you, like, God wants to show you so much more than you've already found. And it's found on the other side of seeking him, of studying his word, of learning who he is. And this is a great category to explore that in. Um, so, so that's what we're doing here in this passage. In this passage, we're doing our best to understand what Jesus is saying. And as I said earlier in the message, the the main thrust of this passage is Jesus. It seems to be Jesus preparing his disciples for his promised return. That's how I understand these things to play out. Jesus is saying these are the different things. Here's what he says. Here's what you can expect to see in the days preceding and even coinciding with my return. That's really interesting. I love that Jesus wants us to be ready. Uh, Paul says, the day of the Lord should not overtake you as a thief in the night. Okay? Um, I just, just thought of this illustration right now. We're just back there worshiping during the music, and an old friend was, is visiting our church today. I actually don't. There's Chris. What's up, Chris? Chris is an old friend. Chris, we haven't seen you in years. And Chris is in town. I'm worshiping, and I, I'm worshiping, and it's like the Lord just heard my prayer, you know? And there's Chris right next to me. It was just such a surprise. It was like, whoa, I did not expect to see Chris. Uh, it was sort of out of the blue. Um, and Jesus is like, that's not how my return should be. You're kind of like, oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot. Isn't Jesus supposed to? Isn't he come- didn't he say he was going to come back? Did he say he was going to be here? I totally forgot. No, Jesus wants his people, and Jesus says it here at the end of the chapter, to be those that are so ready for his return that they're living watchfully. You hear? Are you with me? They're like looking for it. They're lifting their eyes. They live their lives with this holy anticipation that there's more coming, that Jesus is coming. I navigate my life with, with a perspective that believes that Jesus is on his way. He wants his people to be ready. Now, how does he prepare his disciples? Well, he prepares them by giving them these key signs of what to expect, again, before he returns, so they can be ready. And there's really three categories. Write these three things down. The three categories that Jesus gives or or aspects of expectation that the disciples are to look for 
before he returns is certain signs and events that they can expect to see in the world. He gives them a handful of things that they can expect to see from the world. And then he gives them a handful of things that they can expect to see happen upon the world. This is what he gives here. Um, and I wanted to give my three points at the onset just because we do have time constraints. And, uh, you know, if this was an end times classic, like, end times seminar conference, all right, going in, we'd be here for a couple hours. But I'm giving you the points now in case we don't all go through them. At least you have them. All right. In the world, from the world, upon the world. The three things that Jesus wants his disciples to be watching for. These signs. Here, here's, here's how you can expect my return. Look out for these things happening in the world, from the world, on the world. The first is what to expect in the world. Uh, th these are signs that are going to proceed and coincide with his return. He's like, here's what I want you, as you're living your lives, and you're asking me what's going to be the sign of your return, I, I want you to look around and look for these things in the world. I, I want you to expect to see these things right before I come back. Expect to see these things in the world right before I return. Uh, Jesus gives them, in, in the, the first section of verses that we read, Jesus gives them sort of um, these details of world conditions before he comes back. That's what we mean by in the world. Jesus kind of gives a description of the nature of things in the world right before he comes back. And the first category he gives is the spiritual condition of things in the world. The spiritual condition of things in the world there is found there in verse 5 and 6. Jesus says, take heed, this is what you're going to see right before I return, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. The first thing that Jesus says you should expect to see this in the world before I return is this sort of like rampant spiritual deception. So much so that Christians are called to, to watch out, to be careful. Which is often the exhortation towards deception. Because one, one of the biggest deceptions that, a Christ, that Christians especially fall into is uh, we're deceived into thinking that we don't get deceived, but they do. You know what I'm saying? One of the biggest blinders is self-blindfulness, where you're like, they're the deceived ones. And, and that's a dangerous place to be, is, is to think that, that you're immune to deception because of how long you've been walking with the Lord, because of how strong you are in your faith, because of how much you know. You underestimate the deceiver who's cunning and crafty and um, is always looking for ways to get you to think wrongly about what's true, okay? You ever had this happen where the Holy Spirit illuminates your mind and you're like, I was thinking wrongly about that. You ever had that happen? God's like, here's my word. You shall know the truth. It'll set you free from deception. We need to be people of the word. Jesus says, you got to watch out. In the last days, there's going to be rampant deception. Take heed that you don't get deceived. He says this. Here's the nature of the deception. Many are going to come in my name. Sometimes deception is packaged with the name of Jesus. Well, if it's wrapped in Jesus, it must contain Jesus. Well, this is really Jesus, right? I know what you've been hearing is this is Jesus, right? And Jesus here is saying, watch out for a deception that's packaged in my name. There's going to be many people coming in his name saying, notice this, here's the deception. I am he. I am the Messiah. 
Now, I believe that this points to an ultimate fulfillment. Um, you read about in the book of Revelation, maybe you've heard of this character called the Antichrist, that is the embodiment of, and the word anti there doesn't just mean like, you know, when you're anti whatever you're against, you know. The word anti literally means like counterfeit, counterfeit Christ, phony Christ, artificial substitute savior that can't actually save, but postures as one, postures as a savior. That's the antichrist. And, and Jesus is saying that there's, there's some real deception coming where people will literally say like, I am the second coming of Jesus. I don't abide by his words, you know, and I lead people in stark um, contrast and disobedience to his ways, but, but I am he. That's what Jesus says. You got to watch out for that. Now, maybe you're like, okay, what does that mean for me going to work tomorrow? I don't sit next to Joe who's like, hey, I'm the Christ. What do you think, you know? And you're like, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. No, you're Joe. Okay, now, okay. Sorry, I didn't actually didn't actually Joe's right here. Joe, I wasn't even thinking of you, but <laughs> um, for homework, got some homework for you. Read the book, just one book in the Bible, the book of First John. In the book of First John, John says that there there is a capital A Antichrist coming, but he's already in the world. The spirit of the Antichrist is running rampant even today. It's a spirit of deception. And in the same way that the Antichrist will seek to subvert Christ and make himself the Savior. That same ideology, can I tell you, has been running rampant throughout history. And can I say maybe America is the epicenter of Antichrist thinking? It's all about you, what you can do to fix your life, what you can do to save yourself. This stuff is even hijacked. Come into the church where you don't hear a gospel message about your need for a Savior. You get 10 steps to be a better you. I've tried to be a better me. I still am in desperate need of salvation. I need grace. I can't be who I'm even called to be on my own. You know, here's the true church. The true church of Jesus in an age of deception are those like John the Baptist. When people come to him and they go, who are you? John the Baptist goes, I'm not the Christ. That's what he says. That's what he said. I'm, I'm not Jesus. Who, who am I? No. Even better, I'll tell you who I'm not, and that'll tell you who I am. I'm not Jesus. I'm a sinner. I fall short. I'm weak on my own. I have my own limits, but, but I have a Savior named Jesus. And in Him, when I'm weak, I get strong. In Jesus, my shame doesn't define me because Christ took my shame on the cross. I have a Savior. His name is Jesus. That's the spirit of the church. That's the spirit of God. Jesus says, watch out for rampant deception that leads people to push Christ aside and to create some other salvation, some other savior. And I want to say, lest we look on at the world, this is something that we're tempted to do all the time. Place our faith and trust in someone other than Jesus to be our savior. So we got to watch out for that. Now we also got to watch out for, we're doing fine, 1110, we're just hanging out, enjoying Thanksgiving dinner. Here's the next one. There's not just the spiritual conditions of the world. Jesus then goes on to describe, what do we call this one? The international conditions of the world. 
He's like, watch out for the spiritual condition of deception that will be running rampant. And then expect to see this. Right before I return, expect to see, or rather expect to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled, for such things must happen. I love that, by the way. By the way, you ever got news, caught wind of wars and rumors of wars, and started to get troubled? You're like, nuclear bombs are a thing, okay? Don't you love Jesus here? He's like, it's going to happen. Be a Christian. Have your eyes set beyond this earth. There's going to be, it's going to happen. International conflict. It's a sign of the times, Jesus says. For such things must happen. Don't be troubled. The end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus says, expect military conflict between nations. Uh, not just wars, but sometimes which is like scarier than a war itself is a rumor of war. What this war could turn into with this war, and then that war could become that, and they could ally up, and they could get sketchy. We can get bogged down with these things, and Jesus says, no, don't be troubled. You see... Um, this is all around us. We, we see this everywhere today. Obviously, um, there's always some rumor of wars, especially more recently. Like, as we distance ourselves in a healthy way from our phones and our 24-7 doctrine feeds of the news, as we take a healthy step away, right, we're able to breathe. You step back into that world, another rumor. And it can just paralyze you, I mean, especially in the day we're in. Um, this is especially relevant to our time in history, more relevant even to the time of history that Jesus was in. Many of you guys know this. Um, this is especially true of the past century. There's been more bloodshed through war in the last century than every other century combined. Between all the different world wars and beyond that, um, it seems to be a sign of the time. So there's a spiritual condition of deception. There's international condition of, of division and conflict between nations. There's even a physical condition of the world. Jesus is like, this is going to be the physical state of the world. And what I want you to notice about what Jesus says the world is going to be like prior to how he returns, it's, it's interesting how uh, much of a like, juxtaposition and contrast this world is to the Garden of Eden. It's completely swapped around. He says there's going to be, this is really unique. He's like, there's going to be earthquakes, in various places. There's going to be famines, food shortages. There's going to be widespread hunger and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. Um, this is a, a anti-Eden. The physical conditions of the world from climate issues to natural resource issues. Um, this is just some like quick numbers. This is not what I do for fun. I don't usually go on the NEIC, National Earthquake Information Center, to pass time. I may now, because this was actually rather interesting. But um, just like a general survey, from 1970 to year 2000, the number of earthquakes quadrupled. So in 1970, there was uh, 4,100 recorded earthquakes. In 1980, 7,300 recorded earthquakes. In 1990, there were 16,000 recorded earthquakes. In, and this, is, I, this stops at year 2000. There were 22,000 recorded earthquakes. I mean, this is the condition of the world we're in. We're aware of this. Um, we're, we're aware of the, the tragic Indonesian earthquake of 2004, I believe, and the tsunami. We're aware of the, the earthquake in, was it Port-au-Prince, Haiti, in 2010. Jesus, it's really interesting. 
Jesus says there's going to be earthquakes in various places. I don't really have much else to commentate on that, okay? So that's what he says. Uh, the next thing is that there's going to be major hunger issues. Um, today, um, there are as many as 829 million people that go to bed hungry each night. 829 million people. Nearly 10% of the world population goes to bed hungry every night. 14 million children under the age of five um, worldwide suffer from severe acute malnutrition, malnutrition, excuse me. Even more tragic than that, 25% of these malnourished children, only 25% have access to any sort of treatment. This is the world we're in, unfortunately, tragically. Should be heartbreakingly. The worst part about this is that there's, uh, you guys know this, if, if you study this, there's more than enough food to feed the world. Do we know this? This is an anti-Eden. This is a broken system. This is a fallen world. Um, now, at the end of the verse here, Jesus says this. These are the beginning of sorrows. When these things are happening and playing out, Jesus says, this is the beginning. Now, ESV says it better here. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm NKJV from, like, I've just memorized the whole, like most of my Bible verses in NKJV. So just for, as of right now, that's the course we're going. Some of you guys are like, man, I am ESV. A lot of our Reformed people like the elect standard version. I get it. I get it. There, there's some great um, interpretation happening here in the ESV when Jesus says this. The phrase sorrows there is more properly, accurately translated. These are but the beginning of birth pangs. Birth pains. Um, it's not the arrival of the baby, but it's the sign that the baby's coming. How, how do I know when that baby's coming? We've got some, I think, beautifully pregnant ladies in the house today, and I'm just not giving you any new information here, and I'm also telling you this as a man. But from my experience as a dad and a husband to a pregnant wife, um, the two things you look for prior to a baby's arrival is the frequency and the intensity of the birth pains, the contractions. Jesus is saying, Jesus is not saying, you know, once you see an earthquake, he's coming back. There were earthquakes in that time. There was deception in that time. There was military conflict in that time. It's why a lot of people look on at this and go, this has already happened. What Jesus is saying is that, is that when you start to see these things increase dramatically in frequency and intensity, it's the beginning, is what he says. That's my understanding of these events. That they are, and they have been in our time, increased in frequency and intensity. Spiritual deception has always been around, but it is rampant in our day. The condition of the world has been as broken as it is since the fall, but it is broken Today, military conflict has existed since humans were around, but it is frequent and intense today. Um, Jesus says this is the beginning. Now, with all of these signs, we can start to cower in fear. We can start to hang our heads and go, the world is broken, it's horrible. And so Jesus is going to remind his people how to think about these things and the resistance they're going to feel. There's what to expect in the world, not for us to, to, to be paralyzed 
and to be unsure of what's to come. But, but I love Luke's version. Luke says this in Luke 21. He says, when these things begin to happen, I love this. He says, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. I love this. You know, how many times in these verses did Jesus say, don't worry, don't be afraid? I mean, that's just the tendency. How many of us know what it's like for our perspective in our faith to be wholly controlled by what's happening around me? And so the degree of my hope is the degree of my circumstances. The degree of my trust is really the degree of my adversity. And that can, and Jesus is like, it should be the opposite. When these things start to happen as a Christian, you don't get troubled, you don't get afraid, but you lift, this should cause you to lift your eyes and look up and be like, I think he's coming. And you live in light of that truth. Listen, I'm going to park it here this morning. Um, I almost just sent it to infinity and beyond, and that's how long we would have been here, <laughs> truly. You know, we just have the great tribulation and the Antichrist to talk about and the abomination of desolation and the persecution of the church worldwide and the power of the Holy Spirit on the church to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we got a lot to get through, okay? And so I want to park it here. I want to invite Dan to come up, and I want us to... As we close in this time, I want us to just be thinking about our perspective this morning. You know, and what do these kinds of things do to your perspective? And what does it cause you to think about with your perspective? You know, if there's one central question that this causes me to think about, it's like, what is consuming my life? What is occupying all of my thoughts, all of my attention, all of my worry? And, and where do the promises of Jesus fit into that? Are you with me? Where, where does the, like the concrete blessed hope of Jesus fall into my life and fit into my life? These are the kind of things that should cause us to go, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to live towards you. I want to live in you. I want you to live in me. I don't want to waste my life here on earth caught up in trivial things. That's one of the main ways the enemy deceives us. He's, he just gets us bogged down and caught up, especially in religious activity. I want to be like the person that sees these things pointing to Jesus who promised his return. And I look up and I say, Jesus, you're coming. And I want to live in light of that. You're returning. You're returning for me. And can I also say this to the person that's like, when is he going to come back, right? I mean, Jesus has been talking about coming back, and the Christians have been talking about Jesus coming back for, I mean, literally 2,000 years. Um, there's a great scripture in 2 Peter that tells us why Jesus hasn't returned yet. You ever read this? In 2 Peter, it says this. It says, the, the Lord Jesus, he's not slack concerning his promise to return. In other words, he's not forgetful. You ever had like a slacking friend? Do you know what I'm saying? They're slacking. It's like, oh yeah, I had a appointment, or I'm not true to my promise. I, I don't let my yes be yes. Peter's like, don't ever think that's the case with Jesus. Jesus, never, Jesus hasn't forgotten to return. Okay? He's not like, what? Gabriel, wasn't I supposed to be somewhere? Earth? Oh, that's right. Peter's like, no, don't think that way. Don't think that the delay of Jesus' return is somehow connected to his inability to fulfill his word. Peter says, the reason why Jesus is lingering, the reason why is because that ark door is remaining open for you. For you who haven't given your life to Jesus yet, it's his long-suffering and his grace 
that he withholds his return for you to be saved, for you to know him. You're alive today because of his love for you, because of his grace for you. Because not only does he have so much more for your life, but he has delayed so that you can experience it, so that you can know him and walk with him. Peter says, listen, with the Lord, he lives on a different timetable. A thousand years for the Lord? That's like one day. And one day is like a thousand years. Peter's like, essentially, the Lord, Jesus went away for the weekend. Went away for the weekend so far. Left on a Friday. It's still Saturday. And he's coming. He's returning. And let that truth be more than knowledge. Let it be something that calls you to come to him. And for Christians, let it be something you fix your eyes and your hope upon. Amen. 